All right, good evening. How is everyone? Let's open our Bibles to Ezekiel. We're in chapter 19. We're going to look at all of chapter 19 tonight, Lord willing. Study that I call the Lion Kings. You'll see why in a moment. Maybe, I hope so. Ezekiel 19. When Princess Diana died, Elton John adapted Candle in the Wind and performed it for her funeral. It was a lament for her untimely death. Chapter 19 of Ezekiel, we're told, is a lament. Verse 1, Moreover, take up a lamentation for the princes of Israel. And verse 14, This is a lamentation and has become a lamentation. Now, the thing to bear in mind that adds to our listening to it is that this is God's lament. He spoke through Ezekiel, but it reveals His heart for His wayward disobedient people. It may have been Ezekiel's heart as well, but this is God talking to us through Ezekiel, uh, speaking this lament. And so in verse 1, Moreover, take up a lamentation for the princes of Israel. A lament is some verbal expression of great grief or sorrow. It should not surprise us that God can be grieved by the actions of His people. Ephesians 4.30 tells us, to not grieve the Holy Spirit who is God. In the context of Ephesians chapter 4, we can grieve the Spirit by living like pagans, by lying, by being angry, by stealing, by cursing, by being bitter, by being unforgiving, and by practicing sexual immorality. Those, uh, uh, that's a list of the things that the Apostle Paul gives there uh, that... Uh, potentially grieve the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's a short list. It's not a, a, you know, a, a complete list. Uh, to grieve God is to act out in a sinful manner, whether it is in thought only or in both thought and deed. God was grieved and He was lamenting the coming destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. It's predictive of Jesus' lament over Jerusalem in the New Testament. You might remember Him in Matthew 23, when he said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I think it's important that we understand God laments. Sin is always awful, but I think sometimes we picture God as dispassionate in relation to sin. We tend to see Him as a judge, and our picture of a judge is someone in a courtroom who's supposed to keep himself under control, showing very little, if any, emotion as he goes through the motions of meeting out justice. If I understand that my sin will grieve my Lord, I might think more carefully about committing it. Because if I love him, I will not want to grieve him. It puts it into a, a different dimension when we think about that love relationship. Now, laments often employ analogies like a person's life being a candle in the wind. And the laments here that we're going to read about tonight employ analogies. One thing I've been trying to do at funerals where I'm privileged to officiate is to use the deceased's occupation as some sort of an analogy. 
I found that it can help to communicate the gospel with those who have gathered there. For example, years ago we buried a dear sister who died uh, relatively young from cancer. She'd been employed in a position with the county here where she qualified applicants for certain benefits that were available to them or might be available to them from the county and its programs. And so I spoke about what qualities uh, or what qualifies rather or what disqualifies a person from the benefits of eternal life. And, and all those there that worked with her who were in that kind of qualification field, I said, now what if you went to God and you were the one that was applying for the benefit of eternal life? Would you qualify based on the criteria that the Lord has set out? And the answer, of course, was no. Someone in our fellowship told me about a funeral for a friend of theirs. The deceased was an auto detailer. And at that funeral, the pastor spoke about how he, uh, the deceased, would meticulously rub out the stains in the fabric of vehicles that came to him until they were gone and you couldn't tell they were ever there. And then he applied that to Jesus Christ, rubbing out the stain of human sin by shedding his blood on the cross. And I just, I just find it a fantastically effective way to communicate with people at funerals. Uh, it, it's sort of a, it's sort of in the vein of a lamentation almost. And so analogies and figures and metaphors and examples, they can be really effective at sharing the good news. The lament in our text is given to Ezekiel in two figures. The first is that of a lioness and her cubs, and the second of a vine and its rods. Let's read about the lioness in verses 2 through 9 and get that complete lament. Say, what is your mother, a lioness? She lay down among the lions, among the young lions, she nourished her cubs. She brought up one of her cubs, and he became a young lion. He learned to catch prey, and he devoured men. The nations also heard of him. He was trapped in their pit, and they brought him with chains to the land of Egypt. And when she saw that, she waited, and her hope was lost. She took another of her cubs and made him a young lion. He roved among the lions and became a young lion. He learned to catch prey, and he devoured men. He knew their desolate places and laid waste their cities. The land with its fullness was desolated by the noise of his roaring. Then the nation set against him from the provinces on every side and spread their net over him. He was trapped in their pit. They put him in a cage with chains and brought him to the king of Babylon. They brought him in nets that his voice should no longer be heard on the mountains of Israel. Commentators are in general agreement that the lioness represents the tribe of Judah. Her cubs would therefore be the kings of Judah. Since we know the immediate history of Israel at the time Ezekiel was writing, we identify the two cubs who became young lions in this analogy as Jehoahaz uh, and then Jehoiachin. Now the first, Jehoahaz, uh, I love these guys, they have tons of names. He's also called Shalom or Jeconiah. Uh, and, and I don't know about you, but I never really did very well in history, but... Uh, Jehoiahaz, Shalom, Jeconiah. We'll call him Jehoiahaz tonight. He was Josiah's third son. He succeeded his father on the throne and he reigned over Judah for only three months. But in that time, he fell into the idolatrous ways of his predecessors. He was deposed by Pharaoh Necho from the throne and carried away prisoner into Egypt where he died in captivity. After Jehoiahaz, the next cub reference seems to be Jehoiachin, also called Coniah. 
he was carried captive to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. That's the reference in that lament to Babylon at the end. Along with many of the nobility, all the leading men in Jerusalem, and a great body of the general population, some 13,000 in all during the uh, initial sieges. He remained a prisoner for 37 years, after which he was released. Now, it's an interesting historical note. Deposed kings were often literally caged and chained in a cage and left on display for some time. They were literally treated as if they were wild beasts. Uh, this was no time to... I mean, there was no Geneva Convention. Uh, and, and any of these guys would have loved to be waterboarded uh, compared to what they actually did to them. The Assyrians, I think, are the worst. Uh, you know, maybe there were people who did more vile things, but uh, you know, all of them were pretty bad. But the Assyrians would literally put hooks in your jaws. They'd take these gigantic flesh hooks, you know, and, and just run them through your jaw and out your mouth and then just drag you along by this. And if you were a king, I mean, if you were a deposed king, uh, you were on display for a while. You were in, a, in an animal cage, chained down with all kinds of uh, piercings you didn't want. Uh, and and it, was, you know, it was a very, very bad situation for you. Uh, and so uh, it kind of ties into this lioness uh, kind of thing. Here these guys were trying to act you know, they were the lions of the tribe of Judah, they thought, but they really acted more like jackals. Uh, and so God raised up these surrounding nations and they took these men captive and brought them down. So these were the kings of Judah. Uh, the Lord dealt with them on a very visceral level, treating them like the beasts that they had become. Jehoiachin was the last king of Judah. From that time till the coming of Jesus, the Jews had no monarch, have no monarch. Then they rejected the Lord at His first coming. For more than 2,500 years now, Israel's throne has been vacant. It's awaiting the second coming of the Son of David, who is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, some will suggest that the outward failure of the succession of kings contradicts the promise of Genesis 49.10, which says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. The solution seems to be that the promise in Genesis is not of an unbroken succession of kings seated on a throne in Jerusalem, but a promise that the true king would be from the tribe of Judah. The Hebrew word Shiloh can be rendered whose it is, meaning that the scepter would not depart from the line of Judah whose it is. And so all that that promise is saying is that the ultimate king of, of the Jews the lion from the, will be the lion from the tribe of Judah. He will be a descendant of David's uh, through the tribe of Judah. It doesn't mean that Israel will always have a king on its throne. Obviously, that's not true. After Jehoiachin, there have been no kings uh, and there will be no king until Jesus returns in his second coming. Now, we get into the second lament. Again, it uses an analogy. He says in verse 10, Your mother was like a vine in your bloodline, planted by the waters, fruitful and full of branches because of many waters. She had strong branches for scepters of rulers. She towered in stature above the thick branches and was seen in her height amid the dense foliage. But she was plucked up in fury. She was cast down to the ground and the east wind dried her fruit. Her strong branches were broken and withered. The fire consumed them. And now she is planted in the wilderness in a dry and thirsty land 
Fire has come out from a rod of her branches and devoured her fruit so that she has no strong branch, a scepter for ruling. This is a lamentation and has become a lamentation. Uh, the language scholars talk about the particular kind of meter that this is written in. It, it's, uh, it's different. It's not just a narrative here. This is actually something that could have been sung as a lamentation. Uh, and so God is lamenting his people. The nation is pictured here as a vine producing a bloodline of fruitful branches for scepters of rulers. Uh, when we think of the fruitful branches, certainly David and Solomon would come to mind, uh, the kings who brought Israel to her greatest fruitfulness nationally. Now, obviously, Solomon had problems. We're not uh, condoning all of his behavior. But if you want to talk about the glory days of Israel, David comes in, takes the throne, unites the nation, takes Jerusalem, uh, which is something that the Jews never were able to do until the time of David. The people of Jerusalem say, you're not going to be able to take us. And David says, oh, yes, I am. And he pretty much marches in and just takes it. And then Solomon brings the, the political and national Israel to its zenith, to a point that it was just fabulous. And so this is what is being talked about. But after the death of Solomon, the kingdom split in two. It began to deteriorate, and now God describes them as being planted in the wilderness of Babylon like a withered vine that he had to pluck up because of their wickedness and their sin. Israel had everything she needed to prosper as a nation. Speaking of the privileged position of the Jews, the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 9, I quote, To whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Jesus Christ came. And so he just gives a quick, off the top of his head, inventory of, of the privilege of being a Jew, of all that God had done for that people, calling them not because they were a great people, but because they were not a great people just so he could show his glory to the other nations, giving them every possible foundation to build upon so that they could walk with him in success. It was an amazing foundation. Instead, the people, and here, especially the kings which are in view, they took all of that for granted, they threw all of that off, they went into the world and they grieved the Lord. And uh, though, as we've seen in Ezekiel, he warned them and warned them and warned them, he eventually now has to deal with them in judgment. It reminds me that in the New Testament, Christians, you and I, are promised all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. We are told we have all that we need for life and godliness. The Holy Spirit insists that all of our enemies have been defeated at the cross of Jesus Christ. These things are true. We may not believe them. We may not... Uh, you know, uh, assess them properly. We may not have uh, the assurance of them, but these things are all true. All spiritual blessings in heavenly places, everything we need for life and godliness, and all of our enemies are defeated. Sin was defeated at the cross when Jesus said, it is finished. It's been said that he paid a debt he did not owe because you and I owed a debt we could not pay. Sin is no longer, uh, well, sin is defeated. And so you and I can say yes to God and no to sin. 
The Bible says if we say we have no sin, we're liars because we still struggle with the flesh. But there is the, the moment-by-moment possibility of victory over the flesh as I yield to the Holy Spirit, yield to the promptings of God, yield my members and give my members over to serving God rather than to the flesh. Hell was defeated at the cross. Afterward, when Jesus descended into the lower parts of the earth, He led the souls that were in Hades home to heaven. We are saved from hell for heaven for eternity. Death is defeated in that to be absent from the body is to be immediately present with the Lord. If from one point of view the worst thing that could happen to me is that I would die, it puts me in a quandary as it did the Apostle Paul because death is actually preferable to life because I'll be with the Lord. However, my life belongs to the Lord so I wait upon Him to take me home. This is my understanding of Paul's dilemma. He says, you know, I, I just as soon be with the Lord, but that's not my call. That's the Lord's call. And so I'll stay here and I'll serve the Lord until he calls me home. But if the worst thing that can happen to you is that they'll kill you, wow, that's pretty cool. Bring it on. And this is why the blood of the martyrs has always been the seed for the church. And there are many, many stories in Fox's Book of Martyrs and throughout church history of martyrs going to their death by the most violent of means and even those who are bringing them to their death, leading them to their death, guarding them, the soldiers and all, laying down their arms, becoming Christians and joining them in martyrdom because of the power of the belief that sin and hell and death have been defeated by the cross uh, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so uh, as we read about these Jews and how far they had fallen, we remember that they were an incredibly privileged people, more so than any people on the face of the earth. And even into the New Testament, Paul says the Jews are a privileged people. To them belong these things. To them belong the prophets. To them belong the patriarchs. Through them came the Messiah, Jesus Christ. We're like Johnny come latelys to the party. And, and now we are grafted into the blessings that God had brought to them. And so, you know, yes, Israel has been set aside, he goes on to explain in Romans chapter 9, but not permanently. It's a temporary setback until the Lord deals with them through the great tribulation and then comes again to reveal himself to them. And so we have blessings. And so, you know, obviously the analogy is if Israel could have so many blessings and fall, then the Christian can have many blessings and fall. And we need to be reminded of the privileged position that we have uh, and begin to say yes to the Lord and no to sin. Now these laments, if it was a, as if a funeral was taking place, uh, it seemed like there was no hope. Well, there wasn't any hope for deliverance from Babylon. Jeremiah had been telling the Jews in Jerusalem that for some time. That was really the crux of his message was forget about uh, being free from Babylon for the next 70 years because we're in the Babylonian captivity and, and the people refused to hear it. And so I guess from one point of view, you know, the, the Jews that were already in Babylon having been taken captive with Ezekiel, they also were hoping that they would be able to quickly return to Jerusalem, that the Babylonians would be overthrown. But there was no hope that that was going to happen. God had decreed that they would go through the 70 years of captivity. He would keep them through it, but not from it. That was the promise. And in that was their hope. 
Such powerful images were necessary because the people were holding out a false hope that their current ruler, who was not a king, he was the appointed governor, Zedekiah, would somehow get them free of Babylon. As we've seen earlier in Ezekiel, his plan was to uh, have a secret pact with Egypt. Uh, That didn't work. All it did was make Nebuchadnezzar mad. And Nebuchadnezzar is one of those guys you didn't want to get mad. Did you ever, ever, did anybody in your family or did you ever work with somebody you just don't want to get them mad because once they get mad, they're, they just act weird? I, I love him, but my oldest brother was like that. He, he had, uh, I've told you before that every Italian stereotype is true. There are no, I have never seen an Italian stereotype in a movie uh, or uh, in, uh, that isn't true. Uh, there's always one, in every Italian family, there's one just zero to 60, just like that guy who's just laughing one minute and the next minute is angry uh, and mad and all that. And uh, my, my oldest brother, you just didn't want to be a, next to him or around him when he got frustrated on a project. And so, uh, you know, he'd, I'd very carefully sometimes ask him to help me with something. But I'd have to, as I got older, I'd have to gauge whether I thought he actually had the ability to do it or not. Because if it was going to frustrate him, uh, some kind of a punch or a slap was coming my way, you know, just as a just as a reminder or so, uh, of you know kinds of things. And so, uh, you know, you just didn't want to get Nebuchadnezzar mad. Uh, but Zedekiah, you know, and the Jews, they had their heart set on on ignoring God's clear word and getting back to Jerusalem. Uh, they made Nebuchadnezzar mad when they tried to ally with Zedekiah. He, he's going to come down. We're going to get to that pretty soon in Ezekiel where they get the news that the final siege of Jerusalem is over and that the city has been destroyed by uh, Nebuchadnezzar. But So in anticipation of that, God is giving them this funeral dirge, this lament as if all hope of returning to Jerusalem was over for them. These laments utilized a different literary genre to say what you could have read in Psalm 146, 3 through 6. I'll read it to you. There, the psalmist says, Don't put your trust in princes, nor in a son of man, in whom there is no help. His spirit departs. He returns to his earth. In that very day, his plans perish. Happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps truth. Forever. This is really kind of a good psalm for us to bear in mind right now. We're in some pretty tough times, uh, if if the news is true, uh, and if and it is, uh, I'm feeling it. The church corporately is feeling it. And many of you are feeling it. Times are times are tough right now for people. Maybe things will improve. Maybe they won't. Uh, what are we really putting our hope in? You know, if we think things are going to improve, and by things I mean just the general state of our society, are, what are we putting our hope in? I'm not saying that we shouldn't do all that we can do to be politically motivated, politically minded, to vote for the right candidates, to take control of our government, those kinds of things. But I, I am warning you, don't put your trust in government. Don't put your trust in men at all. Do everything you can on an earthly level, uh, but... The psalm here is saying, your help is in the Lord. God may deliver us from these hard times, or He may take us through them. Uh, And I'm I'm not saying that this is a judgment. I'm not comparing us to the Jews in Babylon. 
I mean, this is just the world in which we live. We're strangers and pilgrims. We're sojourners and wanderers living in a world that doesn't really belong to us and that we don't really, we're not really even supposed to feel comfortable here. We're looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. So whatever's going on in the world certainly affects us and we can have an effect upon it for the good and for the gospel. Uh, But the warning here is, you know, whatever's going on in the world, that is not where we're going to put our hope. And that is not where our help is coming from. We have God for our help. And uh, whether he delivers us from hard times or through them, he remains our help and our strength. Either way, we can be happy. He is our help. And we can look to no other person, no other source. Amen? Amen.